Welcome to this recording of the First Presbyterian Church of Asheville. The following sermon given by Rev. David Germer was delivered during Sunday morning worship at 40 Church Street in beautiful downtown Asheville, North Carolina. We invite you to worship here as well as to learn more about this congregation. Visit fpcashville.org for service times and to learn more about the ministries of this church. We seek to experience the love of Jesus Christ by practicing radical hospitality, forming deep relationships, and joining in shared ministry. There's a place for you here at First Presbyterian Asheville. Our second reading is from the 16th chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew. For context, leading up to this passage, Jesus has been walking on water, curing people, teaching people, feeding people, and Peter has just professed his belief that Jesus is the Messiah, prompting what sounds like almost an over-the-top blessing and affirmation of Peter from Jesus, and his stern command to all of the disciples to keep this quiet for now. That's when our passage picks up. Listen for God's word. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord. This must never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Then Jesus told his disciples, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit their life? Or what will they gain in return for their lives? For the Son of Man is to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay everyone for what has been done. Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want to get two things out of the way right up front so that you can focus in with me on what is at the heart of this passage. First, Jesus calls Peter Satan. That's weird. He'd just told Peter that he would build his church on him. That Peter would have the keys to the kingdom. And then he calls him Satan. There's a complex history of interpretation around the Hebrew word that's simply borrowed in the Greek here. Satan or Satana. It can be translated as a proper noun. Satan or the devil as it is in the temptation story. It can also be translated more generally as the adversary. By opposing the very thing that Jesus had just said he was about and committed to doing, 
Peter turns himself into Jesus' adversary. And Jesus firmly says no to Peter's no to Jesus. And we're all capable of embodying the Satan, the adversary, when we try to impede the work of Jesus. Okay, so set that aside. Secondly, Jesus says, some standing here won't taste death until the Son of Man comes in his kingdom. Now, you could read that and just think that's a prediction that Jesus made and he was just wrong. If he was talking about the second coming, uh, which hasn't happened yet, and I'm pretty sure those standing there, Matthew, uh, James, John, yeah, they're all dead, every one of them. So that didn't exactly happen. Uh, if that is the case, I don't think we should be that troubled by that. Jesus was fully divine and fully human and owned and acknowledged that there were some things that he didn't know. But there's another possibility. It could also be that Jesus is referring to some standing there, namely uh, James, John, Peter, who would see him in the very next story in Matthew's gospel in his glorified state at the transfiguration. Maybe that's what Jesus meant. There's one other option that I actually like best. This is the one that I think is going on. Some standing there would indeed see Jesus coming in his kingdom, the Son of Man. And they would see him a little later in Jerusalem. Set that aside too. We will come back to that one. At the heart of this story, the real meat of this passage, are Jesus' words about discipleship. That's what I want to focus in on with you. Jesus' words to the disciples about what it means to live as a disciple. Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me, lose yourself and your life, and in doing so, you will find who you truly are, your truest self. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus asked the disciples who others think he is, and they give him various responses, and he says, okay, but who do you say that I am? Famously and memorably, Peter says, you are the Christ. This is when he has his confession. And this marks a turning point in all three of those gospels. It's right around the, the middle point, a little different in each one, but somewhere around the middle. And after this confession, Jesus fully pulls the rug out from under the disciples and flips everything they know and expect on its head. It turns it upside down. Yes, he's the Messiah, but no, he's not the long-awaited king who will defeat their enemies with violence and take his throne and crown to rule over others. No, from this point forward, Jesus speaks to the disciples with a new freedom and clarity about where he's headed, and by extension and implication, where they are headed, to Jerusalem, to the cross, to suffering, to death. I was really looking forward to seeing how Shannon was going to teach that to the children. Um, 
I, I know she would have done it brilliantly. It's a hard message for, for all of us at any age. When he says, follow me, that's where he's going. When he says, deny yourself, he means set aside your egos, your self-serving, self-aggrandizing ambition for something far bigger and far more rewarding. When he says, take up your cross, he means, well, what does he mean by take up your cross? Uh, that's my cross to bear. Have you heard that phrase? That's a phrase that's used in our culture. I think most often to convey kind of a sense of annoyance at something placed in our lives that we just can't see our way around. We might hear someone say, my mother-in-law is coming to stay with us for her biannual five-day visit, and that's just my cross to bear. Or, oh my Lord, the after-school car pickup line, which my family now gets to experience in two locations every single day. That's just our cross to bear. It's often used as a sort of joke, isn't it? It's a joke that covers over the fact that most rarely pause to consider what we actually do mean by taking up our cross, what that might look like beyond this vague notion of being put upon. The Allman Brothers, in their song, It's Not My Cross to Bear, someone once told me if I used uh, song titles, they would never miss a sermon, and I don't see that person here, so I'm going to have to have words with them. <clears throat> I think the Allman Brothers actually got pretty close to what it means to take up your cross. They they sang defiantly about a relationship. When you're at the end of your road, don't reach out for me, babe. I'm not going to carry your load. It just ain't my cross to bear. I mean, they rejected it. They didn't take up the cross, but I think they're on to something. I think that's closer to what Jesus meant. Bearing one another's burdens willingly entering into suffering for the sake of others. Not, not courting suffering or seeking it out, but willing to suffer, knowing that it's inevitable, knowing that it is often a powerful way of forming and transforming our lives, and knowing that ultimately it unites us with all of humanity and with Jesus. The way that Jesus taught all of this was by living it, not with persuasive arguments or logical explanations explaining how it all works, but by showing them. And so I think the best thing that I can do this morning is to invite us uh, to, to grasp this, to picture and understand what it means to take up our cross with some examples, by telling some stories. So that's what I'm going to do. Some of you may know or have heard of the name Jonathan Myrick Daniels. Uh, not a super familiar name, anyone? I get to teach you something this morning. He was a young civil rights activist who was pursuing ordination in the Episcopal Church. In 1965, at the age of 26, he was one of nearly 30 members of a group of protesters, both white and black, who traveled to Fort Deposit, Alabama, 
to protest and picket some of its many white-only stores. They were all arrested, which they expected, and they were taken in a garbage truck to a decrepit jail where they spent six, six August days in an unair-conditioned cell. Without warning, on the sixth day, they were released, and without planning for a transport, uh, they walked to one of the few neighborhood stores that they'd heard allowed black customers. Four of them, two white men, including Jonathan Daniels, and two black young women, including 17-year-old Ruby Sales, entered, and they were greeted by a white shotgun-wielding volunteer deputy who told them to leave. After some words were exchanged, the deputy suddenly lowered his gun, pointing it right at Ruby's sails, and instinctively, Daniels sprang over to push her out of the way and took the full force of the shot that the deputy fired. And he was killed instantly. Dr. Martin Luther King called this action one of the most heroic Christian deeds of which he had heard in his entire ministry. In a very real sense, that was Jonathan Daniels' cross to bear, literally laying down his life for another. And what enabled him to do that was formation in the way of Jesus, living what one theologian called, and it, it wasn't me, Someone asked that in the early service. I don't, I don't refer to myself as a theologian. Uh, Michael Gorman coined a cruciform life, a life lived in conformity to the cross, the crucifixion, cruciformity. Daniels didn't hesitate in that moment because he was formed by the belief that the God he served, the God of justice who loved him, revealed himself fully on the cross. So this then may be exactly what Jesus meant when he said that some standing there would not taste death before they saw the Son of Man coming in his glory. Some of them were there in the crowd seeing Jesus on the cross. Now is this what we're called to? Literal, sacrificial death? Statistically, probably not. As followers of Jesus, we're called to be ready and willing for something like that. But it's not likely that many of us, or really any of us, will be called upon for such remarkable heroism. So maybe another example, slightly more relatable. And I bet this is a name that you know. Henry Nouwen uh, wasn't a martyr like Jonathan Daniels, but he did live a radical life of taking up his own cross. Nowen was trained as a priest and a psychologist and spent years as a professor at Yale and at Harvard. He was a sought-after speaker and author. After some years of discomfort and soul-searching and prayer, he discerned that his path was not greater influence or prestige, not more power or degrees or published works. He discovered by studying Jesus 
what he called the path of downward mobility. In a culture that's obsessed with success and fame and acclaim and the rise to the top narrative, Henry went from lecturing in the ivory tower to the smartest, most passionate students in the nation who would hang on his every word to living in an unknown, unremarkable Canadian group community of a few dozen people with severe mental and physical handicaps and challenges. His role there was to offer a few words of prayer and blessing, to tell stories from the Bible, to serve uh, the Eucharist, to people who were as likely to uh, laugh or shout out or moan during the services as his Harvard students had been to shower him with praise. And his role was to bathe and dress someone, a man named Adam, every day. That's what the great author Henry Nouwen spent the last 10 years of his life doing. And in doing this, he lived the gospel and shared Jesus' life more clearly than in any of his lectures or sermons or books. That was his cross to bear. And it was the most challenging thing he ever did. And he loved it. And through it, he experienced a new kind of joy. We can't all be Henry Nouwen's either. So one more, maybe even more relatable story, or two for the price of one. Um, I bet these are names that you're less familiar with and maybe haven't heard unless you've spent a lot of time with me. The names are Kelly Allen and Frank Seaman. Frank was a Presbyterian, sorry, Frank was a Presbyterian pastor in the South for half a century, beginning in the late 1950s. And while congregations, uh, you may not know this, congregations typically like it when the size of the congregation grows, when, when the pastor somehow contributes to an enlargening of the congregation. Frank wasn't shy about acknowledging that many of the congregations he served throughout his ministry did the opposite. They shrank. Others would note that this was because of Frank's willingness to take a stand against bigotry and racism and segregation. Frank served as the pastor emeritus of University Presbyterian Church in San Antonio for many of the years that I worked there and my family worshiped there. He provided the charge for me at my ordination service and he died on Friday evening having carried his cross faithfully to the end. From 2009 to 2016, Kelly Allen was the pastor of that same congregation. Most of those years, my boss and colleague, I need to be much more brief than I would like to be right now. You can ask me about Kelly outside of a service and I'll happily talk your ear off. Kelly's cross to bear was fiercely loving her family and the congregations that she served and fiercely advocating for justice, starting Bible studies and jails with the people who nobody else wanted to meet with in those jails, 
working for full inclusion of LGBTQ people in the church, working for the rights and lives of immigrants and refugees fleeing Central America into South Texas. At least once a year, often much more frequently than that, Kelly read to the session and other leaders of the church her favorite passage, her favorite line from the Book of Order, which is this. The church is to be a community of faith, entrusting itself to God alone, even at the risk of losing its own life. That's, that's in our book of order. Isn't that powerful? There aren't books written about uh, Kelly or Frank like there are about Jonathan and Henry. But they both lived in a way that, that I and I hope you feel like, at least to some degree, you can see yourself living in that same way. You're able to embody that kind of cross-bearing. The cross that they took up was the radical belief and commitment to the idea that the church is called into risky faithfulness and witness to the gospel. Not safety or security or even effectiveness or acclaim. Because faithfulness to the gospel doesn't guarantee those things. And that's so countercultural. All of those people, all of those examples were shaped and formed by a community of people not unlike this. A community of people who loved them and who said, let's figure this out together. What does the gospel look like? What does bearing our cross look like here in this place? Jesus brought his friends along the journey with him and needed them with him, praying with him and for him, encouraging him, eating with him, right up until the very end. His cross to bear was the cross. But it wasn't an annoyance, a last-minute add-on that he just couldn't puzzle his way around. It was the very essence of his life, a life poured out for others in humility, sacrificial love, self-emptying service. It was not just death of crucifixion, but a life of cruciformity and downward mobility and faithful risk. What's your cross to bear? For some of you, it might be joining our Guatemala Boundary Breakers team. We'll travel together to Guatemala in late July and early August this next summer to experience the joy of the living Christ through relationships and experiences that transcend boundaries of culture and language and lifestyle. Or for some of you, it might be not going yourself, but sending your kid, which maybe even sounds more terrifying. That might be your cross to bear. Your cross might be becoming a foster parent to a child who needs the stability and love of a family or a person like you. Or showing up with love and a smile for your kids or your spouse day after day after day. It might be becoming a friend to someone who needs one at school. The call to take up your cross is an invitation to a life that's anything but easy 
and it's characterized by the joy of being caught up in the life of Christ and included in that life. By taking up our cross, living lives of humility, centering others, bearing one another's burdens, we find Jesus, and in him we find ourselves, our truest selves, the truest thing about us. We are children of God, the living God, loved by the one who poured himself out for us on the cross, called into lives of cruciformity. Thanks be to God.